We're going to be in the book of 1 Timothy. Father, we do pray, Lord, for, uh, for our hearts and our minds, Lord, to enter in now to your presence. We thank you for the time to worship you in song, and Lord, how so many of those lyrics, uh, they just articulate the cry of our hearts, Lord. We're able to say in a song what maybe uh, we can't form uh, just in our, our typical thinking or with the words that come out of our mouths, and so we're grateful for that. And Lord, they do help us to enter into your presence and to remind us ourselves of things of heaven as opposed to things here of the earth. And Father, now we're, we're praying that your word would have its good work done in us as well. Lord, that you'd refine our thinking, you'd draw us in. Lord, the things of this world which and the messages of this world which do press in on us, Lord, and they're just ever-present and they, they kind of flood our what we view and they just seem all-encompassing. And then we come back to your word and it's like that anchor. It just pulls us back to the dock pulls us back to that place where there's that firm foundation upon which to stand. We're reminded once again of truth. We see once again you clearly, even in the day in which we live. And Lord, in that, our hearts, as your children, our hearts are refreshed. We're enlivened once again. We're emboldened, Lord, to walk in your truth. And Lord, that's what we're praying for our time this morning. That's what we pray for every time we gather in your word, for your word. Every time we open it up, we sit by ourselves and we sit, we read, we consider. Lord, those are the things we're asking that you would do. So Lord, bless us now. We ask that in the name of your son and we believe it's a prayer according to your will. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in, as we said, 1 Timothy. Remember, 1 Timothy is one of three books in our Bibles that are known as the pastoral epistles. All three of them were written by the Apostle Paul. Two were written to Timothy. We call them First and Second Timothy. And the third was written to a fellow named Titus. And these are men that are about half his age. He, let's say, is around 60. They're about 30 or so. He is coming to the end of his life and his ministry. And in many ways, they're just getting started. And Paul writes to them to give them direction, to give them guidance, to, give, to encourage them, really, to do what you, see, you have seen me do and to do it faithfully. And here in this book of 1 Timothy, maybe a little different than 2 a little different than Titus, but in this book of 1 Timothy, I think we see two primary goals of the apostle. One is to give Timothy, like I said, that written direction that he would need for the task that Paul would assign him to, and ultimately that God would call him to. And then secondly, as I said, it served as sort of a, uh, here's your written authorization to be my representative. If anyone questions you, show them this paper. It'll tell them that I have charged you to go to that community and do the things that, presumably, that you are doing there. Paul, or Timothy would serve as Paul's apostolic representative. Representative. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, we'll put it on the screen, you can turn as well. But in 1 Timothy 3, he sums up his purpose for the book well. He says this, I hope to come to you soon, Timothy. I, I've urged you to stay there in Ephesus. I have to go to Macedonia, and I hope to come back to you soon. He said, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you 
so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. And so, again, we summarize Timothy's purpose there. This is what I need you to do. I need you to put that household, that church, I need you to put it in order because it's grown out of order. I need you to make sure it stays in order because, again, it's drifted, it's swerved, as the word that he uses in one of the places there. If you look at verse 3 of the first chapter, he said, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain there at Ephesus. Here's your job. One, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Some have. Elders of the church have. Drifted, swerved away, and they've begun to teach different doctrines from which Paul had given them. If you look at verse 4, he says, and also charge certain persons not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which really, it says, lead to speculations, the word there, divisions. It just causes fights, your arguments over these things. There's no certainty. The unity of God's Holy Spirit, the foundation upon which the church has been built, is, has been put aside, and now the foundation is built on these myths, these fables, these endless genealogies that you're coming up with, these revelations that you're receiving, which aren't in line with the scripture. And no wonder this guy doesn't agree with you, or this guy doesn't understand you, and everyone's fighting about these things. Put them aside. Get back to the certain doctrine that I gave you, and build the faith on that, he says here. Now again, Paul knew this day would come. About five years earlier, four years really, Paul anticipated it. When Paul left that time, the city of Ephesus, he said this in Acts 20, and we, we talk about this every study so far, but it is important for us to see. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. That is, from outside, will come in to the church. He says, I know that, not sparing the flock. And then he says this, and I think this is even more concerning. He says, and from among your own selves will arise men. Now, Paul, at that time, is talking to the group of elders. They're not even in the city of Ephesus. He, remember, he was about to get on a ship and go. He says, look, I can't get back to you. I need you guys to make it here by tomorrow. We're going to have a meeting. I want all the elders from the church there in Ephesus to come and meet with me. And then he says, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw people away unto themselves from the very elders. And so we can get it. Some people from the outside come. We can get it from some per person in the church that maybe doesn't know very much. These are the elders of the congregation that Paul had been pouring his life into. Paul remained in the city of Ephesus longer than any of the other cities, if, if I, my math is correctly. He was there for 27 months where he was their pastor, and he taught them regularly throughout the day, in the evenings, and he taught them and he grounded them in the faith, raised up this group of elders, and now here we are four years later, and even some of those elders have swerved away from the faith. And so Paul, knowing this day was going to come here, is telling our friend Pete, uh, Timothy, Timothy, I need you to get to that city, or I need you to go to that city, and I need you to put things in order. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6. He says, certain persons, that's some of the elders, certain persons by swerving from these things, from the doctrines that Paul gave them, they've wandered away. He says, into vain dis uh, discussion. They desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Notice he says, he speaks there 
of their desire to be teachers of the law. That word desire is an important word. Uh, the Greek amplifies it maybe more so than you and I might. We desire things. You know, I'd love to get a cheeseburger after study today. Now, if I go home, my wife says, yeah, we're not having cheeseburgers, then all right, that's fine. It would have been nice to have a cheeseburger, but what have you. This word desire here is much stronger than that. It is a word which means a dogged pursuit. Is that a word you use much, dogged? I wasn't even sure it was a word after I spelled it. I was like, that doesn't look right. It means a dogged pursuit. It is a wholehearted pursuit that won't rest until it obtains that which it is seeking to obtain. And so some of these people, that's the word it says there, certain persons doggedly pursued to be considered teachers of the law. They would not rest until they, they obtained their goal. Now, it's important to, in the context, a teacher of the law in the first century was one of the Jewish rabbis. And so these fellas here are ultimately, they're seeking to be like one of those Jewish rabbis of the first century. Now, that in and of itself isn't a bad thing. All right, you want to be a, a rabbi, you want to be a priest, you want to be a teacher, you want to be a pastor, something like that. That's not a bad thing. Paul talks in another place that the one who desires to be an elder desires a good thing. You want to help people, you want to care for people, you want to spiritually be uh, leading people and directing people and taking care for their soul. Those are all wonderful things. So in and of itself, it's not wrong to want to be a Jewish rabbi because you want to help people, or a teacher of the law, because you want to help people understand God's word. The problem with so many of these first century teachers of the law is that their driving force was not so much in wanting to enter into this position so they can help other people spiritually. The problem is for many of these first century teachers of the law, their driving force was to obtain a position for the respect that that position held in that society or for the respect that that position gained for them in that society. To be a teacher of the law in that day and age was to be the authority of that community. To be a teacher of the law was to have people listen to you. It was to convey this impression that you were something before God. And people could come to you and you could help them get to God. That's what many of these first century teacher, Jewish rabbis and teachers of the law were truly after. And sadly, it's, it became what many of these, or some of these, maybe that's a better word, some as opposed to many, what some of these or certain of these elders were seeking after as well, were doggedly pursuing. I want to be someone that people know. I want to be someone that is an authority in people's lives. I want to be someone that's respected by other people. That's what they were pursuing. That's what they were seeking. We saw already in one of our previous studies, they were seeking to be something different. You see, Paul was all those things. He was someone people knew. He was someone people came to for answers. But they were seeking to be something different. They were seeking to have something deeper than even the Apostle Paul had. To, to use a phrase that we see a lot in our day, they were, speaking, they were seeking to have something fresh that they could bring to the people so that the people would listen to them and tune into them and draw near to them. They were the ones, they said, and maybe it was true, maybe it wasn't, maybe it was deceptive, I don't know, but they were the ones who said that they had a revelation that they received from God, but that had not been revealed to everyone else, not even the Apostle Paul. And so you needed to come and you needed to listen to them because then they can share that 
with you. They wanted to be these authoritative teachers, these people that others needed to listen to because no one knew like they knew. Now, a particular area of their teaching that they began to hone their attention on was the Old Testament law and the Christian's relationship to that Old Testament law. Think Ten Commandments. And so they they began to hone themselves in. We have an insight on these Ten Commandments. We have an insight on this Old Testament law that Paul wasn't aware of. Well, how do you know that? Well, because I received this revelation. And so they begin to hone in now, like the Judaizers. That's a term we've used here in our times together. It was a person that taught that as a Christian, you still had to follow these Old Testament commandments in order to maintain or gain even a righteousness before God. And so like those Judaizers that Paul addressed elsewhere, the book of Galatians is a great example of it, these teachers began to teach that righteousness came maybe we'll say remained, as a result of keeping the law. And so these folks, they would say something like, well, of course the cross of Christ is important. But continuing from there, what the Christian must do is keep the law in order to remain, to remain right with God. And that, was, that became really their emphasis. And Paul says, look, desiring to be teachers of the law, they had this insight into the law, they want to be teachers of the law, He says, but their teaching demonstrates they don't understand what the law is even about. His words, not my words, his, verse 7. He says, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions of. You see, these teachers, they were approaching the law as if it was their means of either salvation or sanctification. And Paul says, yeah, they don't really understand what the law is all about. Now, lest we think that Paul didn't like the Old Testament or that Paul was anti-Ten Commandments or, again, the Old Testament law, notice what Paul is quick to do here. He says in verse 9, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. He makes it very clear. The Old Testament law, and whenever you see law, don't think, you know, Constitution. Think Old Testament. All right, he says, look, the Old Testament is good. If one uses it properly, Paul wasn't against the Old Testament law. Paul was against the misuse of the Old Testament law, which some of these teachers had swerved off into. And so starting in verse 8, this is what he says. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers, for liars, for perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Again, his word is against those misusing the law, not the law itself. Again, his words are, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And and by that, what we mean is, if one uses it for the purpose in which it was intended. I say, well, what's the purpose it was intended? Paul wrote a lot about this. And so we have pretty clear evidence of what Paul meant when he said, use the law for the way in which it was intended. Paul, remember, was perhaps 
I, I think this is fair to say, he was perhaps the most Jewish Jew of all the Jews in the New Testament. Uh, he prided himself in how Jewish he was. Once he defended his credentials, this is in the book of Philippians, his credentials as a Jewish person. He said, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. In the book of Acts, when he was sharing his testimony, his story of how he became a follower of Christ, he said this, he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, he's referring to Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. Again, he defends himself, who I am, my background, I'm a Jew of Jews. He says, I was raised at the feet of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was one of the priests who had essentially uh, a rabbi who had like a school, and at his feet would sit his children. And there were all different schools that were there, and these people under Gamaliel, and these people under that guy over there. Well, Gamaliel was known for being one of the strictest of the Jews. He was raising future Pharisees if you will. And Paul says, I sat there at his feet as one of his closest disciples. And yet, in, so Paul's the, the Jewish Jew of the Jews, and yet interesting, God calls Paul to a ministry as a believer, as a Christian, he calls Paul to a ministry amongst the Gentiles. Now, Paul would talk to Jews. We saw in the book of Acts, almost every city he went to, he first went to the synagogue and began to talk to the Jewish people. But it became very, very clear that God had a mission for the Apostle Paul to go places and bring the good news of Jesus Christ to places that had never even heard of the things of the monotheistic God. Or if they had heard it, they hadn't embraced it. And Paul would go to those places primarily amongst the Gentiles. In Romans chapter 11, verse 13, he says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. Now for many... That meant Paul abandoned Judaism. That's how many of his Jewish rivals saw his actions, that he, you know, he's amongst all these Gentiles and so on. And for many, that meant that the Apostle Paul had abandoned the Old Testament law, or he rejected it outright. And that wasn't the case at all. As far as Paul is concerned, I don't have a problem with the Old Testament law. Just make sure that you have an understanding of and an application of the Old Testament that is in line with the purpose of the Old Testament, the purpose that God had for it. Again, as we said, Paul wrote about this many times, Romans chapter 3. He said this, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that, this is important, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, if the law was given so that we could keep it and then be justified, then, re then rather than every mouth being stopped, every mouth would be opened. Does that make sense? Because we would then be able to boast, I kept the law and that's why I'm righteous. And Paul said, no, the law was given not so every mouth could be opened. The law was given so every mouth could be stopped, essentially so that everyone would come to this place and would say, I can't do it. 
and we'll just keep our mouths shut and hope no one notices. You ever go to school? And some people did. And you didn't do your homework? And the teacher says, all right, did every, everyone look up here? Did everyone do their homework? And Henry, you remember. You look down. I didn't do my homework. I looked down. Hopefully, he or she won't make eye contact with me, and I won't get caught. It's, we don't boast with the law. We keep our mouths shut with the law, and hopefully God might not notice that we didn't keep it. Paul says that's not what the law accomplishes. Rather, he says in verse 20, he says, rather, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. As I quoted last week, the law was our tutor. It was our guardian. It was our teacher to bring us to Christ. The purpose of the law is not that we would keep it and then attain a righteousness for having done so. The purpose of the law is to reveal to us that we can't keep it and thus bring us to the place where we begin to look for another solution. And so most people think, I get right with God by getting my act together and living a good life. I follow the law. But that's not the way it works. The purpose of the law is to reveal, I can't do this. And so we begin to look for another solution. And that other solution is Jesus Christ, one who would take my penalty for me, one that would free me from my sinfulness, my wickedness, by giving me a new spirit and a new heart, one that will set me free from judgment. The law was never given to make men righteous. It was always given to reveal to men that they are un unrighteous. There's a wonderful example of this found in Paul's writings in Romans chapter 7. I, I told you, Paul wrote a lot about these things. And I'd encourage you, read through Romans 7. I, I think one brother shared with me, if he had one page of the Bible, that's the page he'd want. Romans 7 and the backside, Romans 8. And in Romans 7, he said this. He said, what shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means, he says. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. If it had not been for the law, he says, I would not have even known what sin was. And then he mentions coveting. Paul wasn't a murderer. Paul wasn't an adulterer. Paul wasn't a liar. He wasn't a thief. Paul didn't worship false gods. But what Paul did do was covet. That was his unique area of sin, so to speak. And it was the law that revealed to him that sin. If it hadn't been for law, he would have never even realized that was sin. Most of us know intuitively, don't murder people. Don't lie to people. Don't steal from people. But coveting, as long as I don't act on it, is that a problem? Well, according to the scripture, it is. And it was Paul's study of the scripture as God's Holy Spirit was working on his life that revealed to him that that was the area in which he came short of God's perfect standard. There was this longing in his heart. We don't know what it was for. Was it for someone else's wife? Was it for someone else's money? Was it for someone else's position? He never tells us, but he tells us my problem was coveting. And God revealed to me that that was my problem, and that immediately caused me to understand that I fall short of God's perfect standard. And so it's not keeping the standard because I can't keep the standard, and thus Paul begins to look, well, then there must be some other way. And that other way is Jesus Christ. It was revealed to him. No, the law is not sin. Through it, sin was revealed and is revealed there's a Bible teacher he wrote in the 1950s or so. His name was Guy King. Doesn't sound like a Bible teacher name, does it? Guy King? Sounds like 
somebody else. Anyway, he says this. This is good stuff. I, I was reading through this. I was reading through a bunch of commentaries, and I kind of was like, I'm out of time. I, don't, I can't read anymore, but I have one more left, and you know, one more left. And so I started reading. I told my friend Kyle this. I am so glad I read this particular commentary because it was the best of the seven or eight that I read. Uh, and it was this guy, Guy King, whose name is not a Bible name uh, or teacher name, but he is a Bible teacher. He said this, the three lessons which the law teaches us are this. We ought, we haven't, and we can't. When the law has done the work it is intended to do in the life of the sinner, then the person is ready to cry out to God, Lord, save me. I need your grace. These false teachers, they wanted to be teachers of the law, but again, they didn't understand what the law was about. Now, Paul is going to go on in verse 9, and what you'll notice is it's not exact word for word, but he's going to essentially go in and comment on the Ten Commandments. He starts in verse 9. He says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane. For those, they're, they're basically the first three commandments. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, 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 for murderers, thou shalt not kill, for the sexually immoral. The law was written for men who practice homosexuality. For stealers of men, it says in some versions, enslavers it has here in the ESV. For liars, for perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That's who the law was written for. Paul, he points out, it's not made for the righteous man or the one who thinks he can be righteous. It's made for sinners. It's made for the lawless. It's made for the disobedient. It says there in verse 9. Lawless is those who refuse to recognize any law. Nobody's going to tell me. I mean, it was popular in the 90s or so. Uh, embrace anarchy or something or another. It was on people's bumper stickers. I don't know if anyone here had it. This whole idea of anarchy and just do what everyone. No one's going to tell me. Well, that's against the, the teachings of Scripture. That's what lawless means. Those who refuse to recognize any law. The disobedient is, yeah, you got your law, but I'm going to do what I want to do. I refuse to obey any law. He says in continuing in verse 9, talking about the ungodly and the sinners, refuse to submit themselves to God, for the unholy and the profane, those that essentially mouth off to God. He goes on in verse 9, he says, those who strike their fathers and for murderers. He says, for the, the law was made for the sexually immoral for the men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers, for liars, and for perjurers. And then he has sort of this catch-all statement at the end of verse 10, and he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Isn't that interesting? He just gave a list of all of these behaviors that you see there, murdering, beating up your mom and dad, stealing, uh, sexual sin, all these things. He just gives this list of behaviors, and then in this catch-all statement, he says, and whatever else is uh, not in accord with sound doctrine. You'd almost expect him to say, and whatever else is not in accord with sound behavior, because everything else was behavior. And yet he says, in what, with what is in accord with sound doctrine or sound living, or he doesn't say sound living. I'll say what I said last week. It does make a difference what you believe, because what we believe will always manifest itself in how we live our lives. 
And how sad it is that even in God's church, how sad it is that there are those that those that adhere to a standard of righteous living, as taught by the scripture, are many times labeled, even in God's church, and dismissed as fundamentalist and legalist. Obedience to God's word doesn't make a person a legalist. Doesn't make them a person at all. What a legalist is is a person who believes that it is through their obedience that they are made righteous. That's a, that's a legalist. And if you're not uh, obeying, then you are not righteous. They believe that it's how they live their life is what makes them right before God. What, again, what makes a person right before God is their response to the work of Christ. What causes us to walk, work in obedience is our response to the work of Christ. Are you with me? It's not me living a certain way that's going to make me righteous before God. But because Jesus Christ did a work in my life, my response is to live a certain way. With me? So if you look at this list that Paul is giving of all of these behaviors, again, I think you can make the connection with the Ten Commandments here. Exodus chapter 20 and elsewhere in the Old Testament. And so again, I find it very telling that the Apostle Paul links all of those bad behaviors with bad doctrine, that the one will affect the other. I also find it interesting that many today will look at this list. I told you somebody gave me a book once entitled The Problem with Paul. And my first thought was, I didn't know Paul had a problem. And essentially, you go in and it talks about Paul, you know, it was a product of his day and, and these sorts of things. And so many will today look at statements like here and other places where Paul writes and they'll say that Paul's ideas and his teachings were outdated and that they were antiquated. They'll say things like this, Paul wrote 2,000 years ago, and so no wonder his ideas and his teaching are outdated and antiquated. And yet I find it interesting that when Paul wrote it, he was referencing material that came 2,000 years before him. And so that wasn't outdated. That wasn't antiquated to the Apostle Paul. And so why should the Apostle Paul's teaching to us today be considered outdated and antiquated? I don't think it should. I heard this expression that I think really nails it here. It says, just because one changes the label on a bottle of poison doesn't change the content of the bottle. The poison is still poisonous. And sin is still sin. Whether it was called sin by God two days ago or 2,000 years ago, sin is still sin. And so looking here at this list, what does Paul label as sin? Well, you look at the first three couplets he has there in verse 9. He says, lawless and disobedience, lawlessness and disobedience, ungodliness and sinners, and the unholy and the profane. And each one of those are sins against God. If you look at the Old Testament law, those Ten Commandments, there's essentially two tablets of the law. There are sins that are against God and directly against God. And by the way, all sin is against God. But there are these sins that don't necessarily affect other people around me. They are against me and my God. And then there is sin directly against other people, which, of course, is also a sin against God. And so Paul begins here in these first three couplets. These are sins against God. Then he continues on and he begins to list sins against his fellow man. He talks first there, maltreatment of one's parents. Remember, the, the commandment is you shall honor your father and your mother. 
He talks about murder. That's certainly a sin against your fellow man. He talks about sexual immorality. And that refers to sexual relationships outside of the prescribed means that God designed. He labels that as sin. So whether we're talking about premarital relationships outside of the bond and the covenant of marriage, that's labeled as sin. If we're talking about extramarital relationships, if we're talking about abusive sexual or violent relationships, if we're talking, you look in your Bible, as uh, sex as a form of worship. You see that in the Old Testament. Sin, the Bible labels it. Bestiality, you see that in the Old Testament. And even in our day, the Bible labels that as sin. All of those, and more, no doubt, are included in that phrase there, the sexually immoral, that you see there in verse 10. Paul goes on to there, from there, and he lists another form of sin. He says, men who practice homosexuality. Now, some will look at this and they'll say, what that's referring to is adult men that abuse young boys. But that's not the word that is used here. There is that word in ancient Greek, but that's not the word that is used in this context. In this context, it is one who lies with a male as with a female. The Bible calls that sin. In the book of Romans, chapter 1, the Bible likens a female that lies with a female as one would lie with a male as the same, as sin. And so whereas Paul doesn't use that term in this place, he does use that term or explains that concept in another place. He says in the book of Romans, even their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And you can read the context and you can see what he's referring to. Again, I will remind you that changing the label on the bottle doesn't change the contents of the Bible. And so just because our society no longer wants to label such behavior as sin, it doesn't change what it actually is. And you can go to Canada right now, and I'd get arrested for this message if it went out on the air. It's illegal to preach this message in the nation of Canada, just to our north. And no doubt one day it'll be illegal here, I'm sure, as hate speech. Look, murder was sin 2,000 years ago, and it remains sin today. Fornication was sin. Sex outside of the prescribed means that God has for uh, sexual relations. Fornication was sin 2,000 years ago and it's sin today. Adultery was sin 2,000 years ago. Homosexuality was sin 2,000 years ago, and both of those remain sins today. The contents of the bottle remain the same, and in honesty, the false label on the bottle makes it even more dangerous because now there's no warning whatsoever, and you're going to pick that up thinking it's totally fine. As I was writing this message this week, at lunchtime, you remember I told you to get up and I take a 10-minute walk and I vacuum? Or whatever. I also eat lunch from time to time. And as I was eating lunch, I, 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 don't try, I try to do no work, so I can just... And so I, I go online and I, I read the newspaper, or whatever it might be. And as I was writing this message, the first article that I came across was uh, quoting a high-ranking official in what was... He's the clerk, in what was once the largest... One of the largest Protestant denominations in America, and it's still a pretty sizable... Uh, denomination of the Christian church, quote-unquote. And in that article, he was addressing the fact that his denomination has lost nearly 1.5 million members in the last two decades. Now, that's 1.5. At its high, it was 2.5 million. And they've lost 1.5 million in the last 20 years. And this clerk was responding, and this was the conclusion that the clerk came to. He says, our world is changing. 
And the church needs to meet the growing needs of people who are finding themselves at a crossroad. He said, we need to remind them that Jesus is still in our midst. And what that means is finding new and innovative ways to be the church. And you read the whole context of the, the I'm not going to read you the whole article. You get what he is saying here. His tra- I'll translate it for you. We need to redefine sin for the changing times in which we live. Paul didn't think so, and neither should we. Paul, in this article here, this uh, set of verses here, he adds that catch-all statement. He says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That word sound there, it means to be in good health. So whatever else is contrary to healthy doctrine, it's from the Greek word where we get the word hygiene. And you know that if you have bad hygiene, you can, be, you can begin to pick up diseases and sicknesses just simply because of that. It's unhealthy. If our doctrine as individuals and as a church is not healthy, then we will not be a spiritually healthy people as individuals or as a congregation. Again, that word sound there, it means to be in good health. And so Paul speaks, when he speaks of sound doctrine, he means doctrine which are conducive to spiritual health. And that comes from an unwavering commitment to the authority and the inerrancy of God's word, rightly applied to our lives. Those elders there in Ephesus, that's what they strayed away from. Again, remember the word he used, they swerved away from it. They were on a path that was leading somewhere, and they swerved off, and they got on this thing that appeared to be a path but led nowhere. Sadly, they had swerved from sound teaching. Now, that is striking to me because Paul had been their primary teacher for 27 months, for almost two and a half years He had been their primary teacher, and here we are now, just four years following his departure, and apostasy has set in to that church. Apostasy is a word which means abandoning, the abandonment of established teaching. Apostasy had set in, and Paul was the one that grounded them. You would think they're going to be good. They should be fine. They know. And yet four years later, they had drifted away. How could a church so well taught And in the manner in which they were taught by the Apostle Paul in such a short period of time, how could it wander off as it did? Well, we see in our Bibles, the church in Ephesus was not the only church that did so. Paul wrote to the the church that was in the region of Galatia. We call it the book of Galatians. And Paul was shocked. He was astonished at how quickly they had swerved off. Paul said this in Galatians 1. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And in another place, he'll go on, he'll say, which isn't a different gospel at all, because there's only one message of good news. Theirs is different, but it's not good news. They're teaching you. And again, in Galatia, it was all about how to be righteous by keeping the law. Now, Galatia wandered off. Ephesus there, threatening to wander off. Are we to conclude that we're immune from drifting, even as those two churches drifted? If anything, I think the example of the church there in Ephesus and the example of the church in Galatia, I think it should alert us to the sobering reality that even the very best churches 
and gospel ministries and even individual Christians, that even the very best of them can swerve off into apostasy if not firmly grounded in the truth of God's word. And again, not only churches and ministries, but individual followers of Christ as well. And, and honestly, the longer that I've been walking with the Lord, the more I see it happening to people in ministries and churches that I had never thought it would happen to. And you see people drifting off and wandering off. Now, I don't want that to be me. And I don't want that to be any of us. I hope you don't want that to be you as well or me. And so I ask myself then, well, then what can be done to keep ourselves from drifting? What can be done to keep ourselves from swerving away, as Galatia did, as the church in Ephesus did, as some of our friends in the faith have done? Are we simply at the mercy of the winds, so to speak, that it's going to take us where it's going to take us, and hopefully it'll be a good place? Well, I certainly hope you're not fatalistic in that way, right? I hope there is something that we can be uh, doing to make sure that we don't go wandering off. And I think Paul gives us his answer. If you look back at verse 5, there he wrote these words, the aim of our charge, so Timothy, I want, I'm telling you to go do these things, and I want you to go tell these men that have drifted away these things, and this is what I'm hoping for these men. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul urges Timothy, charge those false teachers, stop teaching the things that they're teaching, because such teaching resulted, he said earlier, it only results in speculation and division. His goal, again, the aim of my charge, as he says in verse 5, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And what that tells me is that what he wanted them to have that they didn't have was a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Look down at verse 19 there. In, we'll, we'll get to this in another week or two. But look at verse 19. There we see that he makes mention of two people, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And they are two individuals from Ephesus that had, he says, made shipwreck of their faith. Well, how did they do that? He says, by rejecting this. You see that there in verse 19, by rejecting this. Okay, what's the this? We'll go back to verse 18. He tells us in the previous verse, it's holding faith and a good conscience. So you put what we learn in verse 5 and what we learn here in verse 19 or so, and what we come to discover is that those who had gone astray did so because of these five things. So there's some overlap. Number one is they failed to maintain a pure heart. They stopped guarding their heart. And so as they're flipping the channel, they just stayed a little bit longer somewhere where they typically wouldn't. But they remained there and they took it in and they allowed that stuff to enter into their heart because they stopped guarding their heart. He says they, that they made decisions that violated their good consciences. And so they, they had this mindset of what needed to be done, but they violated it. They abandoned their good conscience. He says they swerved away from the sincere faith. I know that this teaching has been the established teaching for thousands of years, but I'm gonna, I have a new insight, and I'm going to go. I'm going to swerve away from this sincere faith. He says that they stopped holding faith. That word holding there, it means clinging to. A good picture of it is the person that finds themselves caught up in one of those flash floods, 
and they cling to a tree or they, they cling to a guardrail. They cling to something solid so they won't be taken away. He says here they stopped clinging to the faith, holding to. And then the next one, they stopped clinging to their good conscience. It's repeating what we saw there in verse 5. And so if I could summarize, I would summarize it this way. They made compromises. They made compromises, small ones, no doubt, at first. Just a little compromise here, a little compromise there, no big deal. How's this going to shipwreck me? But soon they made another compromise, and then another, and then another, and then soon a bigger one, and a bigger one, and a bigger one, until eventually they came to the place where they ended up. When, which I don't ever want to go to, and I hope you don't either. When we fail to guard our consciences, we open ourselves up to deception. And so whether that's the deception of this world in which we live, or the devil himself, or even our very own flesh, which can deceive us and lead us astray. When we fail to guard our consciences, we open ourselves up to deception. And before long, what always seems to follow is fanciful theology, remember the myths that he talked about earlier, and heresy, which is exactly what we see here in the book of 1 Timothy. It's been said this, the battle for orthodoxy, right, thinking, is lost not only in the head, but in the heart. It's not always just a, a doctrinal thing that you're wrestling with, and more often than not, it's not. It's a heart thing. It's what I want to do and where I want to go, and I don't want anyone to tell me. And then you have to conform what the scripture says so that you can justify what you're, what you're doing with your life. Are you with me? If you want to keep living for God, as I do, until I come to the end of my days, if you want to keep living for him over that long haul, simply maintain a pure heart every day and throughout your day. And when you stumble and you sin and you mess up, you confess it, you acknowledge it, Lord, I'm wrong. And you get right then. You don't wait till the end of the day. You don't wait till the end of the week. You don't wait till next Sunday or when you can go and meet with the priest or whatever it might be. You get right, right then. And you purify that heart right then. Maintain a pure heart and a good conscience. Because apostasy begins when we trample our conscience. Don't trample your conscience. When God brings conviction, respond to it. Guard those things that you allow to enter into your heart and your mind. Look, we can't control everything that comes into our, our mind, into our heart. Right? You, you go to the mall and you see this or you hear that, whatever it might be. You can't control everything that you're exposed to. But let's be honest. There's a whole lot of things we can control that we just play around with. It's no big deal. I'll find and whatever. You know, we, we used to kid around. If Jesus was sitting on his couch, you'd be watching that? If your kids came in and sat here, would you be watching that? And if you were, that indicator of you're even further along than you think. There's a lot of things we can control. So begin asking yourself, what are you watching? What am I listening to and allowing to enter into my thinking? What am I reading? What am I spending my time thinking about? What am I meditating on? All of those things can have an effect on our heart, for good or for bad. And if your conscience is telling you to do something or not to do something, then obey the leading of your conscience. Can your conscience be wrong? Yes. Paul's going to talk about that a little on how we have to shape our conscience, conscience according to God's word. But for the most part, 
our consciences get it right most of the time, don't they? And so if your conscience is leading you to do this or to do that, do it. Let God's word shape it, live in it. Let his word become the fiber of your being. Be conformed by it as opposed to this world that is around us. Paul, he'll end, he'll say this. And I say all this about this idea of sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. There was the teaching of these false teachers that led to division. Then there was the teaching of the Apostle Paul, a sound, healthy doctrine, he says, which was in accordance with the gospel of the blessed God. Some have, that word blessed can be translated happy, and it's an interesting translation then if you go with it, the gospel of the glory of the happy God. Isn't that great? He loves us. He wants good for us. He wants us to enjoy him and to be in fellowship with him. And he has put in place, follow me, walk with me, respond to my leading. And that is the place of joy. That is the place of rest. That is the place of peace that he has for us. How can a young man keep his way pure, friends? The Bible tells us, by taking heed according to your word. Get yourself into the word of God. There is a place for God's Old Testament law. It is to reveal our need for a Savior. The law is a necessary part of the glorious gospel because you can't have good news without first bad news. And the bad news says you need me, and the good news says I'm willing. That was the message Paul had been entrusted with, he says there in verse 11. It's the message now that he's entrusted Timothy with. It was the message he entrusted those elders with. And they dropped the ball, some of them. And friends, it's the message that God has entrusted you and I with as well, both to preach to ourselves and as we communicate with others. And it's in that that there is a health and a purity, both for the church, but I think most importantly for each one of us as we go about walking with Jesus. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your sure word. We thank you that we can rest in it. Lord, we thank you that as if you spoke it a few days ago, it doesn't matter if you spoke it 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago, your word is true. And so though we can come to it, we can look at it, it, it will expose areas of who we are, but Lord, we are incredibly grateful that here we have the Apostle Paul talking about how he, he came up short. He, it was revealed to him that his covetousness broke his fellowship with you. And Lord, how in the very next set of verses, Paul's going to talk about the transforming work you did in him. How grace, how much grace he experienced, how merciful you are. And so Lord, I pray that that would be what every one of us in this room leaves here with, is an understanding and uh, the experience of the grace and the mercy of God. Lord, if this morning our sin has been exposed, Lord, I pray that you would drive us to the cross. The enemy wants us to get as far away from you as possible, but Lord, you draw us to the foot of the cross where forgiveness can be found. And so, Lord, may every one of us here this morning know the grace of God and the mercy of God found in Jesus Christ. I ask in Jesus' name.